women have always been fighting this struggle to make themselves known, to, I don't know, speak some truth to a community that may not want to hear it, but they're there. They're there and they need to be heard. Print friends, and welcome to the 70th episode of Pine Copper Line, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram and Facebook, and you can sign up for our monthly newsletter with print news from around the world, all at pinecopperlime.com. We also have a Patreon page, through which supporters toss a buck or two in our tip hat every month, and it helps keep PCL on the airs and at your inky fingertips. You also get kind of cool thank yous, like stickers and totes. If that sounds like something you'd be into, check out the link in the show notes. If you just want to chill out and listen, that's bloody okay too. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. Print friends, I am pleased as punch to let you know that Pine Copper Live is finally offering merch. That's right, you can get that PCL logo and rock it to the grocery store if that's the only place you're going out, or just feel sexy with yourself around the house. But we did not stop at the logo. No, no, no. You know your friend Miranda loves a dad print joke. So we have a variety of designs to wow your friends and confuse your family this holiday season. All available on Tee Public. Check it out. Link in the show notes. PCL is brought to you by Speedball Art Products who've been bringing you a diverse range of high-quality products since 1997. Screen printers usually associate Speedball with their wooden frames and craft squeegees, but they actually also have a very nice selection of aluminum frames in higher mesh counts, scoop coaters, urethane squeegees, and squeegee racks that are all quite accessibly priced. So, do you want to find out more? Or learn where you can pick up your new favorite screen printing accessories, check out speedballart.com. This episode is also brought to you by McLean's Printing Supplies. Their small specialist team in the Pacific Northwest is the leading supplier of Japanese relief tools for printmaking in the U.S. and abroad. Our editor, Timothy Pauschak's two favorite tools are his Fatutsubari Sankakuto 3mm V-gouge and his Josue Maruto 1mm U-grouge, both from McLean's. But you don't have to take our word for it because these tools speak for themselves. So head on over to McLean's at imclean's.com to find your new favorite tool and keep on carving. My guest this week is Christina Weil who has recently published a book with Yale University Press titled The Women of Atelier 17, Modernist Printmaking in Mid-Century New York. And you are in for a treat, print friends. Christina is a wealth of information on 20th century printmaking. 
We'll learn about how World War II caused the studio to move from France to New York, its connections to the New School and the Surrealists, as well as the famous and infamous women who came out of it. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to take a trip back in time with Christina Weil. Hi, Christina. How's it going? Hi, Miranda. I'm very well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for joining me in your your New York evening and my Bangkok morning. Um, I'm really looking forward to learning more about your project. Thanks very much. It's, um, I think, very topical and exciting time to be working on women artists. And, you know, every day I feel like I'm reminded of, of why this is such an important topic to be to be talking about. Well, before we dive into kind of the specifics of your research and your new book, would you give a brief introduction for anyone listening just to kind of ground them in who you are and where you are and how it is you would describe what you do, generally speaking? I would call myself an independent uh, scholar and independent curator and writer. I'm based in New York City, where um, my family is. We have just come back after a long hiatus with grandparents during the COVID summer, mm. and I'm very happily back here in New York, and you know, kind of picking up where we left off. And um, certainly, Atelier 17 is always on the forefront of my <laughs> mind. Um, but uh, as you know, I have, you know, a couple of pots on the stove. And one of them is um, a show that unfortunately has been postponed due to COVID, mm-hmm. but um, was a part of an, a sort of larger movement of uh, cultural institutions, museums that were trying to organize a sort of massive celebration of women as a, as a sort of way to honor the passage of the 19th Amendment. And many of those uh, activities are still happening. It's part of the Feminist Art Coalition. Um, Some of them are being delayed until the spring. And I think mine in particular is being delayed for for two years. But um, it was, it will be at Arcadia University in the fall of 2022. (laughs) And it basically, I mean, it's sort of a a spinoff of what I was doing in my, my book research, which was the women artists of Atelier 17. Um, it's all about women artists who are part of this major um, printmaking studio, particularly known for its engraving and Italio printmaking um, that was based both in Paris and in New York. Um, my book specifically talked about women, almost 100, who mm-hmm. were members of the studio during its time in New York City, which was 1940 to 1955. And as I was doing all of my research, I think, you know, one of the major questions you get asked all the time by both your dissertation advisor and your writing groups, and and then as you're thinking of publishing um, your publishers, well, so what? Mm-hmm. You know, so what? What is, what is all this work that you've done, this research that you've done? Like, why should we care about this? And I think one of the major takeaways for me was not just the amazing things that these women did, because they did do tremendous and amazing work at the atelier during their time there. But for me, it was just this broader movement of women that I started noticing who were increasingly looking at printmaking as 
um, a platform from which to build a, a career in the arts in an environment that was not particularly welcoming to women painters or women sculptors, although there were mm. obviously many women painters and sculptors. It just was that printmaking was kind of this backdoor in a way where um, women could come in, they could get into print annuals, which were held quite frequently in the 40s and the 50s into the early 60s and kind of get their name in the art newspapers and the magazines and and just get some notoriety and some name recognition with curators in who were in museums and so that was really important for them and then i started to see not only were they they building a professional sort of cv they were also making friends with one another they were writing to one another as i was doing all this research in artists' archives, I was seeing the correspondence that's going back and forth between artists about, well, you should apply for this residency and you should apply for this annual. It's really great. I know this curator here. I'll bring your work to them. I'll show them your portfolio. Just send me something. And it just was so fascinating to see these friendships and these relationships and these bonds of collegiality building between women mm. in the, in particularly at, towards the late 40s, but into the 50s, and just struck me as the beginnings of some of the feminist collective activity that we start to see in the late 60s. Mm. And so many of these women, you know, they didn't think of themselves as feminists in the 40s or 50s, it wasn't a word that was used all that often. Um, though some of them, as as the movement coalesced, definitely came out and said, you know, affirmed very strongly, you know, I am a feminist. But it just struck me that there was all this activity that was mm -hmm. happening in the arts mm -hmm. community in, in New York around printmaking. And, and so that's where this show at Arcadia University comes out of is that what it what so what question right. that I was always <laughs> asked um, as I was doing my research. So what? And so we have put together a small show with a few artists um, showing these connections between them. And they're very pointed connections. All the artists have a connection to one another in some demonstrable way through the work that we have on view and through some primary documents that we'll have that are letters that are back and forth between them or just show these connections that they had. So how did you come to develop this interest in mid-20th century printmaking and particularly Atelier 17. It sounds like this may this was part of a doctoral research. That's yes, yeah, absolutely. So I uh, worked for many years for four years at printer publisher Gemini Gel mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. And after four years I had decided that it was time to go back to graduate school and did all of my coursework. And as I was coming to an end of the coursework, my dissertation advisor sort of gently pushed me towards, you know, you have to pick a topic to write about for your mm. dissertation. So um, anyway, I, I had worked with her on a seminar paper about Louise Nevelson's prints that she had made at Atelier 17. And what I had discovered was when you look at her catalog resume of her prints, they're 
um, these black and white prints that she had made at um, Hollander Graphic Workshop with Erwin Hollander in the 60s. Um, and they were re-editions, they were second editions of plates that she had made in the late 40s and the 50s at Atelier 17. And so then I just sort of started to pursue this, and I ended up going to the Brooklyn Museum, which has a collection of 30 prints that she had made in the 50s. So these aren't the later editions. These aren't these sort of like uniform, all identical prints that she had done at her Hollander Graphic Workshop. These were hand-colored, completely unique. Some of them were so thickly uh, inked the plates that there was ink dripping down mm. the plate margins and um, with her inky thumbprints, you know, along the margins or in, in one case, the paper had torn because they were often using cheap paper, sometimes surplus paper from the war. Um, one of the sheets had torn and she put a piece of gold paper behind it. So these are just these wonderfully unique objects that she donated to the Brooklyn Museum they had a show of her prints um, in the 60s. And so that was really what hooked me. I saw these and I thought, I got to learn more about this. Mm. And so um, then I just, I kind of started to look at this list of artists who um, participated in Atelier 17 that was published by jo Joanne Moser. She wrote the catalog about the studio when it was celebrating its 50th anniversary and I think it started with something like 50 or 60 names. And then by the end of um, almost a decade of poking around, I had found almost 50 more. And so that was, that's just sort of how it came to be. Yeah. Um, this, this dissertation then became a book and there was a lot more work that happened between finishing um, that at Rutgers University and, and sort of publishing the book um, in 2019. But a lot of fun. Definitely. Definitely. So I think just before we sort of dive into more of that individual experience of the women in it and their relationships, because I think that's really interesting in this idea of this sort of early feminism collectives that of course, I think we associate very much with the 1960s, but of course, you know, nothing nothing appears in a bubble, right? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. um, so th that lead up to this this really strong movement that I think we usually associate with the following decade, I think is really interesting. And of course, the way printmaking and community build into that. But just to give a bit background for listeners into the context in which this was happening, can you tell us a bit about just the history of Atelier 17 and really kind of maybe from when it began to how and why you think it became a place that was more welcoming to women, maybe than painting in sculpture environments. Oh, sure. So for those who are not familiar, Atelier 17 was, is sort of synonymous with this British uh, engraver whose name is Stanley William Hader. Everyone called him Bill, Bill Hader. Hmm. He was sort of raised and educated in England, had this wonderful British accent and in his 20s, he had gone off to work in oil fields in the Middle East and contracted malaria. Oh, my gosh. Came home and decided that he was going to become an artist. And so <laughs> he had made all these paintings while on the oil rigs. He, he had a background in, in chemistry and some other 
um, science-y. You know, he had this sort of both creative but also scientific side to him. So when he came back to England, he sold the paintings that he had made and used the proceeds from that sale to go to to Paris, which at the time in the mid-20s was sort of the center of the art world. Mm -hmm. And he he actually befriended um, a number of both English-speaking, but um, he was starting to learn French, but English-speaking expatriates were really his go-to in those early years. So he met a woman who had studied at the Art Students League in New York City um, with Joseph Pinnell through his hater's girlfriend. Um, and then this woman, whose name was Mary Huntoon, taught him some of the very basics of aquatint and and other, um, I think they did some sugar lift, they did just some basic line hard ground um, work. And then through, you know, more networking, he found Joseph Hesht, who was this Polish engraver. And then from there, he just kind of, I think through some prodding, through through some other English-speaking, well, they were women, came to his studio and said, um, we saw your work, we really like it, would you teach us how to make an engraving? Mm-hmm. And I think initially he brushed them off, but then there was just enough momentum that it kept growing and, and it built. And and then by the late 20s, he had sort of formally opened the studio. And it didn't really have its name until the mid-30s when it moved to a new location um, on the left bank. And its address was 17 Rue Campagne Premier. Uh-huh. And so that's how it got its name, Atelier 17. And at that point, Hayter had started to associate himself with Surrealists. You had Max Ernst coming. Giacometti was coming, Picasso was coming for advice, but then there were a lot of other um, women who were there who were very well, well, they're they're beginning, I think, to be better appreciated, like, and I'm just trying to think off the top of my head, you had um, Helen Phillips, who's, who later marries Hayter, who becomes this great um, sort of surrealist sculptor. Flora Blanc, a reader who was married to, um, she wasn't at that point, she was married to Dixon Reader, who was part of the Fort Worth circle um, of artists, mid-century artists who were in Fort Worth, Texas, and they all are in Paris and they come home and they sort of bring this um, sort of homegrown surrealism to to Texas. Adala Husband, who was a Canadian artist who was also fantastic. Unfortunately, she died in the mid-20s. Nina Negri, who's uh, Argentinian, who was working in a surrealist way. A, a Swedish artist whose name was Siri Rasman. She was also working in surrealist style. So anyway, I, that, that's just all to say that um, surrealism was very much part of the beginnings of the studio. And then as the war begins and the Nazis invade Paris, Hayter moves the studio to America and he stops in New York. He meets some people from the New School for social research. And the New School had been founded right after World War I. It was sort of a place for a new form of sort of humanities and social science research where everything was supposed to be more egalitarian and professors were supposed to be on equal footing with with students and they were bringing in a different swath of students. It wasn't just an elitist university. It was meant for for everyone. Mm -hmm. It was meant for people who were coming to learn after their day jobs, you know, so they had a lot of evening lectures and things like that. So anyway, this is the home. They had a university in exile 
where they were bringing in lots of European uh, professors who lost their jobs as a result of the war or political or religious persecution. And so Hayter kind of falls in with this resurgence of the new school, um, this like, great flourishing of reformation of Europe in, in New York. And a lot of his former pals from Paris are resettling in New York. And surrealism really kind of takes hold at the new school. And there are lectures, there are other professors who are teaching there, um, who are who are affiliated in some way with surrealism or, or influenced by it. And so that's where it is for four or five years after it moves back, after it moves to New York. And I think it's at the New School that it really becomes this egalitarian center because the New School had this premise that you could not discriminate in letting anybody into your course, Mm -hmm. that it was to be open for amateurs and for professionals. It was to be open to men and to women. And, you know, the premise was that you, even though he said there was portfolio review and he was a little intimidating, he couldn't really turn anyone away. I mean, that just wasn't part of what the new school was all about. So I think it was that, Mm. you know, that really jumpstarted Atelier 17 as being this place where where women could come and could get this education in printmaking. And it's not that they couldn't have gotten that at a place like the Art Students League or um, up at Teachers College in, at Columbia University. There were people who were teaching printmaking. There was just something about the type of people who were coming to Atelier 17 at the New School that was so much more professional and sort of an elevated group of people. And it was just, I think, intoxicating for people Mm. to be Mm -hmm. in this room, to be a fly in the wall, to be, um, I mean, to be among Juan Moreau when he comes in to like see what's happening. And you are a 25 year old American artist who's never been to Paris, never Mm -hmm. been out of your country. And to be exposed to that level of just thought was so enticing. So that was how Atelier 17 became, I think, so well regarded in the New York arts community, but also just how it became a more accessible place for Mm -hmm. anybody to Mm -hmm. come. And so when you say accessible for anyone, was this like gender and race and class lines? Was it truly open in that way? Well, that's a question that I think about a lot, especially in light of what we have gone through, what we've seen this summer and sort of the reckoning. I was only ever able to find two women, African-Americans, who worked at the studio. Mm. And that's out of almost 100. So I think that that in itself shows you that the arts community was not integrated at all, at at least in this little microcosm. Bob Blackburn worked there very briefly. He was very close friends with an artist who I, I studied who was refugee from Czechoslovakia, um, whose name was Terry Haas, and they became lifelong friends. But she was the one who taught him some of what he learned about intaglio printmaking. And I think she also was um, learning lithography from him. In terms of class, I think there was often accusations that the women who were coming to the studio were wearing mink coats or that they were of a particular amateur level. And I think that that was kind of a way of brushing aside some of this insecurity that people had about opening up the studio to other people. 
And I think that there were certainly people who had more economically advantaged positions. Um, they were they were women who had gotten married and had children and were in families where they didn't have to work and they didn't have to have two jobs. And that, but they had always maintained an interest in the arts. It wasn't like they were coming in in their 40s and and were all of a sudden, you know, the woman with the diamond ring on. But definitely there were also artists who came from nothing for whom this was just the most amazing experience they'd ever had. Um, and they talked about it later in their lives. So I wouldn't say it was the most, <laughs> the most diverse cross-section, but, um, but certainly I think in, in terms of, of class, like if you could make it in New York, you could probably get your foot in the door here. Yeah. That's, it's always an interesting question too, about access. And, you know, I think you made a really good point in that, you were saying that, you know, these, maybe these were women who were going because they didn't have to work. So you can make sure that you're there on the day that Juan Moreau is there because, you know, you can leave the kids with the nanny and, and come on in and that kind of thing. So I think that, yeah, access is always a really complicated question because, you know, just because it's there and it's open on paper, does that really mean that anyone can come in and all of that kind of thing? And and something that I think is is good that we're all thinking about more and studying more and hopefully bringing it into contemporary mindset as well, you know, in, in the arts for sure. Definitely. I think most of the women who, who did come and had kids had a family member who was helping. It wasn't necessarily that they had babysitters. I mean, even Hayter's wife, Helen Phillips, um, had small children during the time Atelli 17 was was in New York and she just didn't have, they didn't have the money and they didn't mm -hmm. have babysitters. And one of the artists who was in the show and was in my book, Anne Ryan, she was this sort of grandmotherly figure because she was in her fifties when she started to work as an artist. She'd always been a poet and very creative, but she would babysit for the mm. hater, you know, Phillips family. And it's just, I think it's indicative of where we are today. You know, I mean, literally where I am today um, I do not have enough, you know, babysitter care, school support to to continue with my work. And yeah. it reminds me so much of what these women were struggling with in the 40s. You know, they 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 were having to make these sacrifices like literally every day about how am I going to how am I going to advance my career while also not giving up on my family? You know, it's it's a really hard thing to to manage it yeah and it's yeah it's something that is at least in in the states i think throughout the world but particularly in first world countries or developed countries or however you want to say it in the united states it's it's so present currently you know i have a group of several friends from college who are danish who were i met in seattle when they were studying abroad and they've gone back to denmark and you know as i followed their life and kept in touch you know the women in that group, their experiences with having children while working, of course, has just been profoundly different than any American women I've known who've made that choice, you know, because they get that support from the government, because they get affordable childcare, because, you know, creating a life where the woman is going to be the primary caretaker of the child, that they don't have to choose between being sort of this member of the world outside of being a mother. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, so I think it's it's present in the 1940s. And as you say, it's very present in 2020 for 
many women, and particularly now that a lot of women are schooling the children from home. And so that mm-hmm. that free public school, take the kids for, you know, how many hours a day is no longer functioning in a lot of places due to COVID. And so it's huge sacrifices and choices I'm sure women are making a- across America right now. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I was really, you know, when, when you first reached out to me and you were sort of describing some of this research you were doing, I was really keen to hear more about this foundations of feminist collectives or women collectives that happens, as you sort of say, like a little bit later on in our, our sort of art history timeline. And then hearing you speak about it now, it sounds like a lot of these ideas came from, you know, really seeing the way that the women were interacting and the fact that you've gotten your hands on these primary documents from the letters and that kind of thing. And so I would love it if you could speak to really that element of your research and kind of what you were seeing in your research that you were saying, ah, like, I think this is the seeds of something and I'm seeing something about the way these women are interacting that can kind of be connected to this broader understanding of the way female artists come together to create collectives that are then, you know, powerful and can serve as, as movements and really, you know, political forces um, that we see sort of later on. Well, I'll tell you two two anecdotes. And and this is, you know, one of the, the other things I'm so passionate about is is just like artists saving their archives and mm. so many artists who I've, I've encountered where um, I've met family members and they've talked about throwing out boxes of letters and things mm. like that. Um, <laughs> and so I, I just, I feel so lucky that I was able to find a few artists for whom there were very extensive material for me to look through. Um, some at the archives of American art, which is part of the Smithsonian institution, um, and some in other uh, other institutions or privately um, held papers. But one of the first previews I got of this was um, sort of the collections of letters that I found um, with uh, an artist named Warden Day, who was an artist who kind of began as a painter. She was from a rural upbringing uh, in Virginia, a very religious family, but she ended up moving to New York because she sort of knew that was the center of where she wanted to be. But then you sort of start to see all these letters that Warden has written to other people and because they've been saved in the papers of Louise Bourgeois, um, in Anne Ryan's papers. Um, and, and you start to get a sense of how actively she was working on behalf of her fellow student. And I know that she felt so strongly from even the 40s and the 50s that she needed to ally herself with other women, that there was something about that that would Mm. advance her career in a way that I think she realized was not going to happen. I mean, she had a few male mentors, and I would say that her teacher at the Art Students League, whose name was Vaclav Fitlisil, was one of those mentors who she kept in touch with and was very dedicated to. But it was these women she met both at the Art Students League, at Atelier 17. Um, and then she was kind of peripatetic and would go to fellowships. She'd have a visiting professorship somewhere or she'd be an artist at a uh, sort of summer residency. And these connections that she made, I started to see all of them. And, you know, she's really the one who starts Mm. to say, write to people and say, 
send me some of your work. I've met a really sympathetic, a person who is sympathetic to the modernist movement. Hmm. I want to show them your work. I want to show them some of your modern graphics. Send me what you have. And so you see that happening in some of this correspondence. And then you see her in the 60s trying to organize a women's only exhibition. And Mm. she and Louise Bourgeois had been in um, Vitlacil's class together um, and it overlapped over some period of time. And I think, you know, Bourgeois had this very ambivalent relationship with feminism Mm -hmm. um, and wasn't sure she liked the idea of an all women's show, but Warden is organizing this kind of thing in the in the 60s before um, we start to see these these sort of larger movements to like go mine the archive and find un- unknown women artists. Um, and so she's feeling that. And she had sort of a salon also with um, some other fellow artists who she met both at Atelier 17 and elsewhere. Dorothy Daner was part of this group and they would meet together and they would talk about what some of the issues were that they faced as women artists in um, the New York arts community and, and sort of more, more broadly. So those, those were some of the connections that I started to see in letters. And then I think my second anecdote I just wanted to mention mm-hmm. was this kind of crazy one. At the end of my research, I had always I'd done a little project on Ellen Lanyon, who is an artist who's based in, was based in Chicago. That was where she got her start. And I'd always known that she went to the University of Iowa to study with Mauricio Lazansky, who was another hub. And, you know, again, we can talk about opportunities for women. Mm -hmm. Um, Many women were not getting those university jobs at this time. It just was not, it was just not open to them. So Mauricio Lazansky, who fantastic artist, but didn't speak very much English, somehow got this job at the University of Iowa, um, set up their printmaking program. And Ellen Lanyon was there. And she overlapped with Miriam Shapiro, Mm. who, of course, we all know as a great sort of instigator of feminist art in Mm -hmm. um, California at, I think it was Cal Arts. But anyway, Miriam Shapiro and uh, Judy Chicago together, you know, sort of the thought of as some of the mothers of feminist, fem, the feminist women's art movement. So I'd known that they, t- they overlapped. And then I just happened to be looking at Miriam Shapiro's papers and I find that like, oh, there's letters, there's correspondence between them. They were really good friends. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm reading like, well, Miriam Shapiro was there first and she had a graduate assistantship being Mauricio Lazansky's secretary, assistant, hmm. basically. And that when Ellen came in, she made sure that the job went to Ellen. And then years pass. And then, you know, Miriam is starting to work with people like Lucy Lepard and obviously Judy Chicago, and they're trying to connect women. And she reaches back out to Ellen Lanyon, who's based in Chicago and says, we're starting something called the West East bag, which I think Hmm. got shortened to web. And these were local organizations of women artists who would get together and they would talk about like, you know, where you could show your work, yeah. where, who was sympathetic to a woman artist. And so Ellen runs the chapter of Webb in Chicago. And so, um, and there's one, I think out on the West coast and one in the East coast in New York. And so you just, you start to see some of these connections that were fostered in printmaking in the fifties mm-hmm. that are coming back into full, full circle 
in the 60s and the 70s as feminism is taking off. And I was just like, whoa, that's <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. And so that for me was just like, it was just this spark. And I thought, what else is there? Who else was there? Who else should I be like reading their letters? Um, you know, what else is there to discover? I know there has to be more. So yeah, as you yeah, those are both like amazing stories. And it's yeah, it just makes me, me think of I don't know if you've heard the latest about Judy Chicago's prints, but her archive just was placed at the Jordan Schnitzer for all her prints in Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So that'll be a really great it's got a home and a the Jordan Schnitzer Museum has just an incredible print collection and Judy Chicago's prints have landed there. So it's very good news for people who like Judy Chicago and printmaking and archives. So <laughs> Oh that's awesome. That's yeah. definitely awesome. But you know when I was I was working. This is so hard to remember because it was back in February when right. we didn't have COVID. It was a million um, years ago. Yeah, a, <laughs> I know. And I was giving a paper about women artists and their archives and the missing aspect of artists who seem to have just disappeared from the historical record because you know there's sometimes just a lack of archival research or archival material about them. And um, I had. Just in like Googling this, uh, I had seen that Judy Chicago initially had a really hard time finding anybody who would take her archives related to the dinner party. Really? And yeah, and she could and she sort of held on to them because she knew how important they were. But I think that just speaks to how we write art history. How do we write yeah. inclusive art history when we don't have the material? Because mm -hmm. it hasn't become classified as important. The two women who I was, I was speaking about earlier who were African-Americans, one of them, you know, kind of died in poverty, I think, in the Catskills. And no one really knows where. Mm. She, like, n no one really knows very much about her. And I'm sure that there was a lot of interesting things that she had. And I think they've all vanished. And the other one was... I'm not kidding you, an orphan who mm. grew up in an, an orphanage in New Hampshire and somehow made her way to New York. But she's like this ethereal character who I'm, I feel like I'm never going to be able to find anything about yeah. because nobody has cared enough to, you know, like, where is she had to have had papers, archives, letters, clippings, something about something. her. And they're yeah. all gone. And I think as we as we sort of take you know, our 21st century lens, you know, and sort of turn it back on all of art history up until this point, I think this is something that we are kind of reckoning with is that it's, you know, it's not necessarily that there were no artists of color working and there were no women working. It's just they were never allowed in the canon, that their contemporaries mm -hmm. didn't say, oh, I should save these letters or I should save these sketches or even, you know, I should save these finished works. And so we get this art history that is very white and very male and very straight and very cis. And it reminds me of that adage, history is written by the victors, right? So that's who the, the, the primary powers that be are the ones that were deciding and organizing you know, what goes in the books and what doesn't. And it's really difficult to think about the profound loss of all of these other human experiences in the art world that, as you say, like when, when they're gone, they're, they're gone for the most part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They are. 
But you can, I mean, I think that's, you can get around and you can look at things through different angles and you can Mm. find a little bit because schools still exist and they have records and, you know, museums still exist and sometimes they have records and um, so you're able to get at things, but you can't really get the mother load, um, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Those, those, those primary documents, which of course are the, the ideal for all, all historians out there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I feel like I have a very sort of non-art historical question because I was trained in art history myself. I did my master's degree in it. And so I kind of know that like trying to uh, guess the inner workings of people is a little <laughs> bit a no-no. Um, you know, like you're supposed to be like, nope, you use the facts that you have, right? But as I'm hearing these stories about the way these women interacted and stayed in contact and looked out for one another and wanted to create spaces that, you know, were just for them, I really have this desire to know what their emotional life was like between them. You know, did you see like really um, like affection and kind of bonding in the sense that we're in it together? Any of that kind of maybe less hard and fast historical, um, <laughs> the, the soft history, I don't know, or something like that, just because I I identify with that that so much, you know, that that feeling of, of really bonding between women and, and knowing that you share... A shared experience and how kind of profound that can be and how important those really beautiful connections you can make with other women. It's something that's really important to me personally and also as as an art professional. And so if you're if you're allowed to as a historian who's just had a book published <laughs> to to, you know, get a little bit more into those details, I don't know if there's any anecdotes or anything you can point to that have more of that maybe emotional reality of what was going on. Well, so I think that you have to remember that most of I don't know, I just I feel like most of the correspondence that people were having um, sometimes they would just send these like quick little cards to one another. They would send letters to send sort of cheap paper. And so there was um, a lot more written down. And I, I just, I don't know, I have a hard time imagining um, somebody calling somebody up and like having a phone call with them. I mean, I think phone calls, as I understand it from my mother, who was in, you know, college in the late 60s, like it was really expensive for her to call home Mm -hmm. to her family in Minnesota when she was at Manhattanville College. So I don't know how much there was that kind of friendship from from sort of like telephonically. Yeah. But certainly I do feel that they were gatherings at people's studios um, they were for sure gatherings at at bars, and mm-hmm. they they con- they would congregate um, at the very these very masculinist places like the White Horse Tavern and the mm. Cedar Bar, um, and and others. You know, they definitely read about other places where after the day was done, you would go and grab you know a drink or coffee if that was what you needed, and you would just sort of talk. And I think that's mm. one of the things that um, that Hater felt he did for New York was really bringing people together, um, that there was this cafe culture in Paris that didn't quite exist in New York, that he felt people didn't know each other as well. So I don't know, maybe maybe there was a bit of that. I can't speak to any specific mm-hmm. things that, I mean, except for these salons that I know that, that Ward and Day organized. But there are at the Archives of American Art, a few uh, oral histories with some of these women 
and they're kind of amazing to listen to because I feel like listening to somebody talk with an interview, I mean, be interviewed for sometimes four or six hours, mm. you really almost feel like they're in the room with you and you're listening to them pour their heart and soul out because they knew that this oral history was going to be part of the historical record. And, and I don't know, it just, it really like gives you a sense of who they were and how they would react a little bit when, if presented with a certain situation. So I was just going back actually and listening to um, one of those oral histories with uh, an artist named Sue Fuller, who's not in the, the show at Arcadia, but is somebody who I admire and like very, very much. Um, she was quite pioneering and very, very intellectually engaged and was researching, for example, Mary Cassatt in the 1950s and thinking about her as, as a pioneering artist who was working on collages in the 1890s. Because she felt the way that Cassatt was putting together her color aquatins was actually not that they were aquatins, that they were soft ground etchings, and that she had used newsprint to create the tone for those aquatins. Or that in some of her other early prints, you can see little scraps and pieces of, of fabric that she's sort of pressed into the soft ground. And so it's Sue Fuller who says in, in an article she wrote in the 1950s that like Cassatt, along with so many other women artists, were working in collage. They were scrapbooking and they were, you know, they were doing collage before Picasso and Braque have been sort of designated as the founders of, of sort of collage in, in their Cubist way in, I think, what, 1913, 1914. And so anyway, just like listening to this, listening to her talk again, it's just, it's like intoxicating yeah. to, to sort of... To hear her, and she had a hard time um, reconciling with what feminism was, and felt that she had tried. She'd worked so hard to get her work into collections, and she did these amazing prints. And then she would she would deconstruct string, and she would wrap it in this geometric way, sort of like op art, around um, open metal frames that had pegs on the side. Um, And she got the work into like the Whitney and the Met and a lot of important collections. And then when all the, you know, sort of protesting was happening by, by feminist artists outside of the museums, guerrilla girls saying, you know, where are all the women artists? Why Mm -hmm. are they not part of the Whitney Biennial? You know, she just sort of had a hard time because she said, look, I worked really hard and I'm one of those token artists. And, you know, I admire what they're doing in this agitation that they have about this, but I don't know. She just she mm-hmm. couldn't quite fully see herself as as a feminist. And and I what is so fascinating also is she was working with lace and very, you know, handcrafty type things. Um her mother had had embroidered and had made, you know, sort of other crocheted things and and had died in the 1940s and so she got all this material and she used it in her prints um, including this amazing lace collar that her mother had bequeathed to her she cut it up and she made it into the shape of a chicken and a hen 
and uh-huh. then and then printed it as a as a hen and so you can see the spiky collar and then she added the the beak and the legs and some feathers and things like that and then you know it wasn't at all about it was it was a little bit about calling attention to the fact that like lace work and handwork that women were doing she recognized in the 50s that this was an art form that yeah. what women were doing was valuable and that it wasn't second class and it wasn't lower on a sort of artistic hierarchy, but she wasn't able to be more um, vocal about it. And then 20 years later, Miriam Shapiro makes, she's, you know, collects lace. Um, like many, many women artists I, I found, she collected lace and she made a series of prints called anonymous was a woman. Mm-hmm. And they're these beautiful sort of standalone um, prints of just pieces, scraps of lace, but there's one of a collar, of a lace collar, just like the one that Sue Fuller had used. And then, I don't know, I've just been reading so much about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and mm. her style and the the lace collars that she had. I don't know, I just, I couldn't stop thinking about this, this like yeah. permutation of the lace collar from its Victorian origins in mm-hmm. the next 19th century through Sue Fuller like using this collar that her mother had had, um, cutting it up and turning it into something that was aesthetically, you know, her goal. And then Miriam Shapiro being much more strident about her political thoughts about, you know, these are anonymous objects that were created by women and we should have, we should value them. And then, you know, I just, I see all these, these memes with, you know, Mm -hmm. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is all just coming back full circle. But listening to Sue Fuller talk about this, um, talk about her mother and how uh, in this oral history, like talk about how crafty she was and how she was just the embodiment of a woman when she was growing up and and thinking about how, how she stepped outside of the norm and became an artist and was not somebody who would stop if somebody said, you can't do that. Or that's not a woman's, like, that's not a woman's passion. You should give it up. And she would just say, no, you're wrong. I'm going to keep doing it. You you just, you you get a sense from reading enough correspondence or listening to these amazing oral histories or interviews, if you're lucky enough to get them, that I think you can make these inferences. It's hard to be a historian, I think, and and be slavish to what you read on a piece of paper because Mm. you're never going to get exactly what you want, you know, when you're reading, you're never, never going to get exactly the quote or the smoking gun. You always have to just sort of like piece it all together a little bit and see, what did she say here? What did he say here? Like, how do I put all this together? Mm. And then you can kind of make a story. And I think hopefully people think the story I'm telling is compelling um, and that it has some truth and it speaks to something that they also have experienced or they also have seen in their research or it speaks to them today as a, an artist or even just a woman today. And I don't know, I think, I think the more we can pull these kind of stories out and we can remind people that this has always been here, that mm. women have always been fighting the struggle to make themselves known to I don't know, speak some truth to a community that may not want to hear it, but they're there. They're there and they need to be heard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely. And I always think that it's, it's, there's a comfort in seeing the women who have done it before us and the bravery that they had and the risks that they took 
And it makes me really emotional to think about it, you know, just that while there's so, so, so far to go in terms of equality in our society for for women, for people of color, for non-binary people, but, you know, looking back into history and seeing what they were up against compared to what we're up against and the progress that has been made that's always a bit invigorating for me to see that that it's so like okay like if if you could take this on when circumstances were what they were in 1948 i think i can take this on when circumstances are what they are in 2020 and learning that history is really important for that for me no 100% i mean i think when New York was locked down in uh, April and we were just struggling so much with childcare and just life and the horror of it all. And I would really often, my mind would go back to a specific person, an Hmm. artist who I had studied. And I would think about, you know, just the choices that she had to make, the hurdles that she had to overcome because of either World War II um, having to leave their, you know, leave Czechoslovakia because they were Jew and they were going to, mm-hmm. um, you know, end up in a concentration camp or just women who had to um, live through the depression. And it just all came full circle for, for me of just like living through this moment. And the, yes, you can persevere. And yes, it may be hard, really hard for a while longer. But there's something at the end of the, there's something at the end of this. I don't know what it is. Yeah, we're gonna get out of it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and and this is the, like the the work that I did on these women just oh is a constant reminder to me that mm. that like their bumps, their bumps and ups and downs and and these people were amazing and I don't know they persevered in their own ways. Yeah, I think that's that is a really really beautiful note to kind of start wrapping up on as we're getting towards our our hour recording mark but please let people know the title of your book where they can find it and then also the full title of the exhibition and where they can find that in 2022 and then also you've got amazing resources on your website for just the biographical supplements for 97 of these, you know, of female artists from Atelier 17. So just please get, plug all the resources that, that you've got for these because you've got some amazing ones out there. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so book title is The Women of Atelier 17, Modernist Printmaking in Mid-Century New York. It's a 2019 imprint from Yale Press. You can get it at your local bookstore. I tend to prefer uh, bookshop.org where money goes to local bookshops, but you can also get it at Amazon and Barnes & Noble and, and those places as well. The exhibition at Arcadia University is called Proto-Feminism in the Print Studio. Um, It will be fall of 2022. Arcadia is this gorgeous liberal arts college that used to be called Beaver College. It was an all-women's college Mm. outside of Philadelphia. And uh, they have this amazing space that was a former I feel like a power station. Um, so it's a really cool space as well. And then, um, yeah, Miranda, as you were alluding to, I did, after I finished my book, uh, I 
did go through and try and find something about everybody who was on the Atelier 17 roster who was uh, identified as female. And uh, so there's a website that's linked, it's a subdomain of my website. So it, you would go to atelier17.christinawile.com. Um, it's its own sort of resource. You can pull up um, pictures of the artists uh, in many cases sometimes not, uh, a picture of their work and a short biography. And for some of them, I might have just been able to say, I know that she studied at Atelier 17 around 1950-something, or that I know that she was from Alabama. Whatever it was, I threw it in there. Um, and I have people write me all the time um, with follow-ups, and I know something about this, or I have one of these artist work. So that's been kind of fun to to kind of get these random inquiries that from time to time with people who are like, oh my gosh, I've had this hanging in my dining room <laughs> for years. Or like, she was my great, great aunt and we didn't know anything about her. We're so, so grateful to, to have something, to know mm -hmm. something about her. Um, so definitely check that out because that was um, a fun thing to put together, a labor of love. Yes, I was, I was having a very good time clicking on names I didn't recognize and finding a little story there, a, a bit about who they were and the photographs of the women or when you have those are incredible. And yeah, it's a well worth some, uh, some, <laughs> I, was, I want to say like so a lockdown activity that won't depress you. Yeah. Or something like that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. A lockdown activity. If you're not homeschooling your children right now, yeah. um, if you are... <laughs> bookmark it and save it for another day. Definitely. Well, I will put a link to that in the show notes and a link to your book and a link to your website. And it has been just absolutely a pleasure to learn about your research and all of the women in Atelier 17. And yeah, I guess just I wish you the best of luck for, for getting through the rest of um, the rest of COVID in New York, <laughs> for sure. Thank you. And same to you in uh, Bangkok. And I hope that our paths will cross in person at some point. Yes. I feel like there's something about COVID that has brought us so much closer as a community. Mm. I feel like every time I go out in New York, I see somebody I know, like literally somebody I went to high school with or I haven't oh. seen. You know, New York has just gotten to be smaller. And I think in a way, like, even though this is a global pandemic, it's kind of like made everything a little sharper. Like, yeah, OK, here are some people I know and I really like and and like I hope we get to see each other at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And and so my husband's family is from New York so we go back there and then also I'm I'm here in Bangkok for at least a handful of years and there's an incredible printmaking scene here in Thailand incredible so if you and your family um, ever want to take a Southeast Asian holiday beautiful weather beautiful food and just exceptionally talented warm printmaking community here too so I could I could give you a tour oh, amazing well maybe we'll leave the kids behind yeah and come. <laughs> good to say I was like you know maybe maybe there'd be a seat in there for book number two if uh, <laughs> Thailand oh, printmaking yeah, yeah. <laughs> no totally no no no, no. That'd be yeah great. yeah well again yeah thank you and, and let's stay in touch well that's our show for this week join me again next week when my guest will be Stephanie Santana 
We'll talk about her finding art through MySpace, taking up printmaking through illustration gigs, historical textile traditions carrying religious and ancestral meaning, the importance of archives, and how being a mother affected her practice. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Thank you.